This podcast is an unedited excerpt from an MCLE program presented at MCLE's Conference Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Anne Hulecki of Boston Technology Law in Cambridge talks about how outside counsel can effectively negotiate a contract to accomplish the deal while also protecting the client. This podcast is excerpted from the MCLE Business and Commercial Law Program, Contract Management for In-House and Outside Counsel. It was recorded at MCLE in Boston on June 18, 2019. Get 24-7 instant access to hundreds of business and commercial law e-lectures like this one and more with a subscription to the MCLE Online Pass. Learn more at www.mcle.org slash online pass. Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or its speakers. For full terms and conditions, please see the MCLE website. Hi, I'm Ann Hulecki from Boston Tech Law, um, and I'll be talking about this middle section, um, negotiation and um, working effectively as outside counsel. So my perspective is very different from Jean's. I'm an outside counsel. I have been in-house. But I'll be talking about how outside counsel can be effective working uh, for their clients through negotiation and hopefully to add value um, in the process. The perspective I'll present is primarily that of the selling or the licensing party. Um, Because I work with a lot of emerging companies, developers of technology and software, I'll use examples from that field. Um, Startups provide an excellent uh, example because often they don't have all the contract processes that Gene was talking about. Um, They don't have playbooks of clauses, uh, so we'll be starting from scratch. But much of what I'll talk about will apply to both parties, big and small, Um, in-house, outside, uh, buyers as well as sellers. Um, First, I want to thank Kyle Glover for letting me borrow a talk that he gave last year. And I've uh, repurposed his notes and added my own perspective, but I just want to make a disclaimer on Kyle's behalf. If it looks at all like his presentation from last year, he has absolutely no liability for what I'm going to say. It's a collected view of outside counsel on the panel. Right. (laughs) So um, much of of this you know, as as Jean has mentioned. But I think the important thing is that we're all in this together, learning from one another and sharing. So um, to try to improve how we how we handle the contracting process. And we're all learning from one another. And this is one perspective. We talked about the before, during, and after, and that I'm talking about this middle section, but even within my talk, there's a before, during, and after to the negotiation process. Negotiation isn't just a in-the-moment center um, function, but there's a before and after process. And by process, I mean um, the structure of um, the contract intake, the negotiation itself, and then what happens uh, in the follow-up afterwards. 
So why do we even need a contract process? Um, I think it's to know in advance what we're able to agree to, and then after the fact, know what we've already agreed to. And with evergreen contracts, a company can then predict possibly or estimate its future revenue. Um, when we have contracts organized, we're ready for when investors come in and they want things right away, um, or if there's an audit. And also for something we lawyers do really well, once there's a breakdown in the relationship, if something goes wrong, then we have the contract and we know what it says um, and we can point to that for reference. It's a little harder for outside counsel than inside counsel to be a part of the team because it takes time um, to develop that relationship and it takes some research. But we're expected to understand and evaluate risk. So this is time well spent. This is a process that we have to embrace so that we can more effectively counsel. So have a plan so you can show that you're invested in your client's goals. So our role, our domain as the lawyers is, of course, the negotiating and the drafting of the contract um, and the legal terms, the so-called legal terms. Typically, we don't deal with uh, or decide price or payment or any of the business terms, but we know that these are all inextricably linked. Negotiating a limit of liability may be linked to how much insurance a client has or how much insurance we advise them they should get. Um, negotiating warranties and disclaimers may be contingent on, say, how much time it takes your client to implement its system at its own customer's site and how much involvement they have with one another. So we lawyers are issue spotters. We can spot liability at a thousand paces, but companies don't need more issues. They need resolution. They already have enough issues with bringing their product to market, hiring and retaining people, um, figuring out their marketing plans. So they need results. So we need to go beyond issue spotting and spot the issues that are unique to our client. Um, for example, giving uh, indemnification against IP infringement may be easier for a provider who has patents. Or, or it may be prohibitively risky for another type of company that doesn't have that kind of protection. So you need to know each individual's um, risk level and risk tolerance. So lawyers, as we've mentioned, as you know, are expensive. Our services add a cost to the deal. And some might even say that once we're involved, there could be months of revenue lost in just um, the contracting process. So we're starting from the rear of the field. We need to talk about adding value. We talk about that all the time. We need to think about how we can add value. So our role is more than just scribe and intermediary. And to start enhancing this role, the best thing you can do is find ways to help um, organize your client and streamline the process. You may think, oh, I'm just looking at this contract, but step up and manage those horrible deadlines that you may feel are always hanging over your head. I know I always feel that pressure, but if I embrace them and become part of the process, I can help the client set realistic expectations for how long this is going to take. Um, so not only are you not holding up the process, but you're helping move it forward. 
So you embrace the deadlines. You have status reports with your client, maybe a weekly quick call, just so they know you're working for them, you haven't forgotten them, you're finding out what has transpired since the last time you talked to them. When you make a change, explain why. Explain in a way that a layperson can understand so that next time they're educated as to these terms and why they matter so they can spot them and come to you, whether you're in-house or whether you're outside counsel, they can spot the issue and bring the contract to you. Most important thing, of course, is to listen and gather um, information about what their principal concerns are. <clears throat> Your outside viewpoint is what the client is paying for. They want to know what's happening with other similar contracts, with other similar customers in this industry, with similar vendors. That's very valuable information that you can give to them. So we can look at our three skills as organization of people, process, and principles, negotiating and drafting, adding value. But maybe your client is just saying, when can I sign this? When can you get this done? Um, and you know it's not a quick look, but they may not understand what's involved. So the best thing, when I feel that kind of pressure, I need to sign this. I need to sign it, well, when? Well, like in an hour, can you just give it a quick look? And it's never a quick look. Even if it's just a paragraph, you need to t take in the whole context. So the best thing you can do is take a deep breath, take a step back, and help organize this process, which seems to have gotten out of hand. Um, and that means understanding the people involved, understanding the process of their communications, and what principles are the most important to them, identifying the big rocks. As Jean said, identify those big issues, worry about the big issues. So let me just share an early experience of mine as a, as a young lawyer, very young lawyer, a long time ago. As a new lawyer, I was in-house in a software company. I barely knew what a software company did. I was in Kendall Square, and I was entirely focused on the, the piles of contracts. And I had piles of salespeople outside my door, and I felt, oh, I'm so popular. They're, they're coming to me all the time. And it was kind of the Wild West. I mean, I think there were maybe two buildings in Kendall Square back then, and Richard Stallman was on a megaphone wandering the streets. It was a long time ago. And I found that I was digging in, digging in, working harder and working harder on these contracts. And the salespeople only wanted to know, when are you going to get this done? When can you get this done? When can you get mine done? Mine's first. So it was very competitive and very stressful. I thought I either had to have all the answers or find the answers. So I ran around the company looking for all these missing pieces in the contract, all these business decisions that, that weren't there. So then I got smart, and then I made a list of all the recurring questions. And in essence, I invented my own intake form. I realized I could actually go talk to the executives in their nice offices and find out what's important to them. And as a young lawyer, that was a little intimidating at first. But I, re I overcame that, and I made my list. So the next time a, a salesperson came up, they couldn't even cross the threshold, but I'd give them my form. You know, do you have all this information? And sales had great motivation to, to run around and collect all this information I needed. So then what I did, I bought myself time. I now had time to review the contract and give it the attention that it needed um, and review the legal 
aspects that were my domain. So just a little story. So organization is king. Um, and advance preparation is king. Most companies and most people are disorganized. And I don't mean that as a, as a criticism. Um, this is because new companies may not have a contract process or a playlist, or large companies by virtue of their size may have communication gaps. So in trying to help a client organize, I think of these three domains, the people, the process by which they communicate and negotiate, and the principles that are really important to them uniquely. So if we place our focus on the people rather than the issues, I think we'll have better results. Because without the people, you don't have the process, you don't have issues, and you don't know what the principles are. So I'll focus primarily on this middle section, the contract negotiation. But I have this um, beginning middle and end, even within the negotiation process. So the negotiation is critical, but you need your information up front. And you need to follow up. The value of your relationship with your client has a lot to do with how you follow up at the end and whether that contract is of value to them and is getting implemented. So how do I organize? This is one method. It's only, it's only one way. Um, I like to meet people in person. So of course, when I have a new client, I invite them into my office to meet with them in person. Um, I also offer to go to their offices and try to meet as many people as I can. I ask for a demonstration of their technology so I can better understand it. Um, but often, we only have time to send contract red lines back and forth. And that's it. We can, I can go for months without seeing a real human being. You know, it's just red lines and, and emails and texts and phone calls. So if you can't meet, at least have an initial call for each new contract, just to touch base and go over what are the essential points, what are the big rocks, what do you really care about in this contract. And I find open-ended questions, of course, are best. Tell me about your technology. Tell me about the deal. What's this client like? Have you dealt with them before? What are your principal concerns? So I organize my own thoughts by having checklists. That way you can direct the discussion and get the information that you need. Ask for an initial call with the counterparty. Take them off guard. You just want to find out. You want to meet them. You want to find out what their concerns are, what, where they are in this process. Have they done this before? Um, or is this a totally new technology for them? Here's a sample um, of a most basic kind of checklist at a very high level. And some questions seem really obvious, like parties. But sometimes those are the missing pieces. Who are the parties? Who are the stakeholders? Um, you can't be expected to intuit these answers. So this is the beginning phase where you can find out the most information. What really matters to your client? What risks concern them the most? It's all, I'm always learning something new because I come in like a blank slate. I try to reduce the number of presumptions that I bring with me. The less you presume, I think the more you can intake. So for example, um, Maybe your client doesn't mind extending a warranty or offering a warranty. That gives you something to bargain with. Maybe they need all payments up front, but they're willing to push them back 
for the first two months because they have to spend time implementing their system at their own <coughs> customer's site. Um, you know, what other options? The most important thing on this list is the last one. What other alternatives does the client have if this deal falls through? And nobody wants to talk at the beginning of a contract about it falling through, but you need to find ways for alternatives because we find that adds to your customer's leverage, your client's leverage. All you have to do is ask, and it's much smoother and more efficient and more appreciated if you do your asking up front because it shows you've done this before, you're interested in them, um, and you've done a little homework. One of the most overlooked um, things on my list is related documents. Is there another NDA already signed? Is there a related earlier contract that may have better or worse terms? Um, sales and engineering may have a slide deck that will help frame the whole deal for you. Where's the proposal or the quote? I find nobody gives these things to me at the outset. I have to ask for them, but it's always beneficial and people don't mind giving me all this information. It helps the process. Sometimes people say, just look at this. They think they're containing their outside counsel costs, but it may actually make it more costly if you go down the wrong, go down the wrong path. Um, I think seeing the specifications, I'm not an engineer, but I asked to look at the specifications uh, and the statement of work. Um, you have to understand which party provided which pieces. This could change the whole type of agreement that you, that you start with. It could change the types of reps and warranties and indemnities that you ask for depending on who's providing what part of the specs or who is doing the specifications in total. Um, making your requests up front may also, again, buy you more time so you can spend that time looking at the contract and understanding the important legal um, issues that you have to review. And uh, quick question. So um, if I am, in addition to kind of maybe if I'm in-house counsel using some of these this material myself in terms of dealing with internal stakeholders, if I'm working with outside counsel such as yourself, um, what are, you know, I'm thinking I want to keep costs low, I want outside counsel to do a really good job. Um, what are some things I can do for you to make you as effective as you can be? Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, I think the list that I just went over applies to in-house counsel. Gather all that information. You can do a lot of legwork and save your outside counsel time. One of my chief bugaboos is being given a paragraph and saying, look at this indemnification clause. Are we okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, well, can I see the whole contract? I'm not going to spend hours, you know, redlining your whole contract, but I need the context. So providing context is really important. And I think another thing for in-house counsel, we, we work as a team. You know, we can really help one another. If it's a, if it's a junior in-house counsel person, I learned a lot in those early years at a software company from uh, Wolf Greenfield and Sachs and from other outside big firms that we had hired. You can learn a lot from the outside 
council because they see different things and they see uh, repetitive issues in different contexts. So a junior lawyer should sit in on the negotiation to learn. If it's a senior lawyer on the inside, I think it's good to say, these are the parameters. These are the big rocks that I care about. Care about. You go negotiate that, because then you save yourself some time if you're the in-house counsel, and you should trust your outside counsel. But you may want to sit in with the meeting um, to see what's going on for the first few times. But giving them authority uh, to act through a secondment if they come in, or giving them authority to negotiate a certain contract for you within your own parameters. I think that's that can be helpful. Does that answer yeah, your question? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, so research. This is where we lawyers can really shine. We know how to do research. And one of the best parts of my job is finding out about the interesting technology, interesting things that my clients do and that their uh, vendors or their clients do. Um, so it takes me beyond scribe, I think, to understand the vocabulary of the client. It's worth my time to go to a tech, you know, an MIT technical seminar to learn something about machine learning or AI. And it's worth my time to read a white paper and bring myself up to speed. So at least I can talk to people. Um, the law doesn't have to be boring as long as your clients are doing really interesting things. Um, and I found engineers love when I ask, what does your technology do? What did you invent? They will explain to me, and it's so helpful to understand what they do. Um, and with the internet, there's just, there's no reason to have to go cold into a contract. The context that you learn can change everything. So knowing the parties, the subject of the deal, um, may help you determine the leverage. For example, we may presume the big company always has the leverage. And uh, the little developer, they are just fighting to get some of those big names on their website as their customers. So um, here we have an example. Big Co has a, a software, an outdated software solution for mission-critical internal functions needs to be replaced. It's just too cumbersome. And Little Co has developed cutting-edge technology. They're chomping at the bit to get this big customer on their website and to get this customer uh, within their realm. But the big company is saying, well, we're not going to pay that price. They're undercutting them. So what do we do? Who has more leverage? We may assume it's the big company. But what if Big Co would be the first adopter in, this, in its own industry of this new cutting-edge technology? And we knew that. What if Big Co's combat competitors were already developing an in-house solution similar to this? And what if Big Co would have to incur prohibitively expensive development costs to meet its needs? Everything shifts, and now Little Co has greater leverage based on you know just these simple facts. So digging deeper, often your salespeople have a tremendous amount of information or the marketing people. There, so these are alternatives to help define leverage. And within the negotiation itself, there are hundreds of ways to add to your leverage. The three key ways to add leverage is to ask, what are your competitors doing? And you can ask this of your own client in private, as well as 
the, the counterparty. A second thing is to allay fears. I find most positions that people take have to do with fears. Fears of new technology, fears of cost, fears that they're not going to look good uh, with this deal. So show that you understand. Um, summarize what they're telling you. Show them you understand and understand the reason for why they're taking this position. Ask why and try to allay their fears. Third, you can point to outside authority. Providers, developers can point to their SOC reports or um, standard data security um, in the industry. You can point to what other customers are doing. Alternatives affect leverage. So if BigCo has other options, other places where they can get this uh, new technology, they'll still have greater leverage. But if LittleCo uh, doesn't need that company's business, there are other big companies that, that can buy their technology, um, then they may maintain their leverage. Leverage, um, the counterparty's number and, and the um, the quality of their alternatives is inversely proportionate to the leverage you have in getting a good deal, getting a favorable deal. If both parties have numerous alternatives, then a favorable deal for each party um, is less likely, or there may be no deal likely. Both parties have to want to come to the table and have something to gain. So I mentioned checklists earlier. Um, and here's a sample of a very specific granular type of checklist um, I've used in analyzing data um, in a contract for a cloud solution. And Gene talked about assessing or me measuring risk. This was one tool or a part of a tool that I used. Everyone's concerned about data, data security, personal data, uh, valuable company um, confidential data. So how do we map that data? Well, you need to know. You need to get into the weeds. What type of data will be in the cloud and where's the location? Where are the servers? What are the regulatory, the legal, and the policy obligations to maintain that data? What are the different risk levels for protecting that data? Is it high risk? Is it medium? Is it low risk type data? And then you map the type of data to the regulatory requirements and to the data security that you have available to secure that, that data. So it's a technical, factual-based um, analysis. But this is something the lawyer needs to understand. It's no longer, um, it, it, people are very specialized and we're dealing with some very um, intricate and high cost, high risk issues. So it really pays to understand um, or have a, at least a basic understanding of what your client is dealing with. And then there's, there's a technical assessment. Is the security appropriate for the level of risk? So that's just a sample, um, but it can help you determine, well, do we need this contract at all? Should we bring it in-house? Should we have um, a hybrid cloud solution? You know, it, it can determine what you're going to do and the type of contract you're going to need. So to summarize the first part of my middle part of this talk, um, once you have organized your stakeholders, your clients' goals, your issues and your risks, you understand the legal issues, you've collected all your related materials, 
you've looked at what the client's alternatives are, you've started to define how much leverage your client has. So now everything's lining up. You have everything that you need to start the negotiation. And then nothing is cast in stone. You've got issues and deadlines and people taking positions and products and data and process and risk and price. Where do you start? And you've got people using different methods of negotiation or they're trying something that's completely different from what you had planned. So what do you do? Um, people have different negotiating styles. And perhaps the worst style, which may not even be negotiation, um, called positional negotiation, is often the most frequently used um, method <laughs> of coming to some agreement. And you know what this is. Positional negotiation is when two parties pounded each other to essentially arrive at a split of the baby. And it's, um, it's not as effective as understanding the underlying interests of the parties. Um, it, it may help, although I, I'm sure you know what this is, it may help to see it in action with just a very brief demonstration. I'll get some help from Kyle. So, um, hey Kyle, um, I've, hey, yeah. I, I've been noticing your tie. That's a really nice tie. Oh, yeah, thanks. I like that tie. Thank you. you yeah, know, I, I like it too. <laughs> I'd like to buy that tie. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, well, I'd be willing to consider it, but um, it is going to cost you a little bit. Really? Yeah. Really? Well, um, okay. So I'll give you 30 bucks. Are you kidding me? $30? <laughs> this tie is worth so much more than that. You're kidding me. How much, it, it, it's not like it's brand new. You're wearing it. I mean, so, all right, I'll, I'll give you 50 bucks. I'm sorry, and I clearly don't understand the value of this tie. The most I could possibly, the lowest I could possibly part with it for is $200. $200. Oh, my God. I'll go as high as, yeah. I, I should have worn a tie. Exactly. Um, uh, all right, I'll go as high as 60 and that's it. That's 100, it. 100, 100. And that's killing me, but I'll do it. 100. 100. That's my last and final offer. How did we get here? So both parties are wondering, how did we get here? And, you know, we've chopped away talking about price. We haven't talked about the quality of the tie, the brand of the tie, you know, <laughs> whether he has sentimental attachment to the tie. And behind the scenes, we haven't done any investigation. So what if I had? What if I had an interest-based um, discussion with Kyle. What if I asked him, why? Why, is this, why does this tie matter to you? I might have found out that this is a very sentimental tie, that this is a, a legacy tie, that he, he got this when he graduated from law school, and he thinks someday he will pass it on to another uh, deserving lawyer. And I want the tie because I've got a nephew who's graduated from law school, and I have no time to shop. And I see this tie, and I think, this would look great. I need a red tie, and I can't find one. I don't have time to shop. I'm going to ask Kyle. So we don't know that we have, there's some commonality. He wants to gift his legacy tie to a graduate. I have a graduate. I want to, I want to give this gift. We haven't investigated any of those. Maybe Kyle has another tie at home that he'd be willing to part with for the right price. But Instead, we've each taken positions. It's worth something to Kyle. It's not worth that much to me. And we, and we pounded each other to try to arrive at a solution that really 
probably isn't satisfactory for either of us. So that's just an example. Um, and to bring things back into focus, and every just a quick uh, yeah. time check, 20 minutes. Okay, um, I'll, I'll be able to finish, I'm sure. So um, just to bring it all back into focus, the people, the process, the principles, um, thinking of the three elements of the negotiation. People are at the top because they matter the most. That's all that matters. Business is about relationships. And the way I think about contracts is when I tell my client the contract is literally a way to bring two parties to the same page. And clients, I'm sure they ask you, is it ironclad? I want ironclad. And I'm like, well, that will really cost you. But no, it's never, it's never ironclad. Um, because it's only as good as the underlying relationship. So when a client um, comes to me, I explain contracting is a process. This is a process by which you will develop a trust, a common trust with these uh, with the other party and form a relationship or continue a relationship or build on an existing relationship. It's all about the people. And just to um, illustrate this point, I had a light bulb moment. A client of mine is a consultant and a professor who helps teach problem solving. And apparently the human brain is really bad at problem solving based on all the PBS programs that I watch and based on the success of her consulting business. Um, <clears throat> but I think contracts can be like puzzles or problem solving um, to address sometimes opposing issues for each party. How do we puzzle this through? And over the years, most of the problem solving tools that I've ever seen or looked at always start with identify the problem. Step one, identify the problem. But here, my client starts with people. They're in the center. Who is involved and why does it matter to them? She starts with the people. And for me, that was a light bulb moment. So who are the stakeholders, the parties, and what's happening now? Are the parties stuck? Are they moving too fast? What matters most to each of them? They're people. It's not a, a process, you know, a sterile process in and of itself. It's people making decisions. So um, what are the most important next steps you can brainstorm? Just to review the elements of negotiation as the four S's, which I think Kyle thought up, stakeholders, scope, schedule, and systems. And I'll go through each of these. Stakeholders, as you know, the people who drive the deal, the owner, of the business operations who are, uh, whom the deal affects the most. And then also who approves each element of the contractual risk and the costs. And of course your in-house counsel, who's paying for the deal, is it procurement, is it sales, is it legal, um, it may be attributable to a different part, uh, department that you don't realize. And then who are your subject matter and technical experts who can advise about the subject of the, of the negotiation. So if you diagram all the necessary people, you may end up with a chart like this. So you have in the left column the issues, which affect different people in different departments. For example, the liability cap. Maybe the CFO determines that. The scope of indemnification. Maybe the president has a say in that. 
information security, disaster recovery, you need to pull in engineering or you may have a security team. Um, insurance, back to the CFO. What does the insurance policy cover? What does it say? What are your limits? And then subcontractors, who even knows who they are and do we need to get prior approval for them? So here we see the different departments affected and under consult, all the different people who may have some say or some information about this. And then in the final column, who makes the decision? And this is kind of a heavy load in the deciders column. This may slow down the process because we have so many people making decisions. A more streamlined process may make one or two key people, may give one or two key people the power to make a decision. But as outside counsel, you may not have the ability to uh, shape that process. But if you're starting with a new company and helping them form a process, you can make that suggestion that they limit their deciders or their, their people making decisions or their contacts with outside counsel um, limited so that you can get crisp, quick decisions. But the cons consultation column is still full of people because the more people you engage, the more people who are involved in the process, the more they'll feel a part of the process and own it. By scope, um, I mean whether this is a key contract, what it's intended to cover, products, licenses, terms, services, development, what are the key objectives of the parties, um, and also what is your involvement in this deal. Um, make the scope of your involvement clear. Often you're given the contract at the last minute or you're given a piece of the deal to look at. Um, or in-house counsel has already reviewed it and has a few discrete questions for you. So keep your involvement clear and ethical by allowing the client to be informed of exactly what you're reviewing and what they're asking you not to review so that they know what you may see that you think maybe you should review for them. Give them um, an assessment so that they can evaluate the risk. Scope is a factor of the schedule and the timing that you have and the budget of the deal. A client may be unwilling to give in much on a project um, that is a low value to them. Or they may only have time to address the big rocks in the, in the legal issues. Um, in helping stay on schedule, you need to understand the steps involved the approvals, and help others understand what steps you have to go through um, to get this contract in shape to reflect the deal and to reflect the understanding of the parties. Um, what's your timing is always one of my first questions for the client. Timing affects everything. It, it affects the amount of information, time you have to collect information, the amount of your involvement. Um, in your time estimates, include everything that you think may be needed to get this deal done. I think it's better to overestimate, as you probably know, and come in a little bit early than to say, sure, I can get this done you know, in an hour and then be late. Help set realistic expectations. And then systems. What systems, I view this as resources that you may have at your disposal. People to answer questions. What policies does your client have in place or should they have in place? Do they have certifications? Do they have SOC reports? 
Um, do they have security standards? Have they written them down? Do they have in writing some disaster recovery system? Often, I find not. So, you know, I ask them to come up with a summary. Anyway, these are resources that help you allay fears in their customers about how good they are at providing security, how good they are at providing their product. Have periodic meetings with your client so that you know um, how, the prog how the contract is progressing, what you're doing, and what they're doing. Meetings, I find, can be tremendous time sinks. I often think, if only I didn't have to go to so many meetings, I could actually get some work done. But meetings can be milestones to check up and see if every, everything is proceeding. It can make me get my work done faster to meet that meeting date. Um, but you need to be effective and efficient, always have an agenda, or at least a list of few items. And if you don't know what you want to cover, just get on and off the phone, cover what your agenda says. Um, another tool is to track issues and approvals. Um, this is a very uh, simple, high-level um, list for a provider. So in order to make meetings effective, come to the same page with your client. Um, they have unique needs. So here is a sample high-level checklist of issues. Do we have our reports and policies up front? Have we given them to the customer so that they can assess um, how good our data security is? Our client wants the license to use the customer's data, and they want the ownership of the derivative data. Or maybe they don't want to touch any data. They'll give indemnification for IP infringement only, but never for negligence. The choice of laws for a cloud provider may really matter and affect which data security laws apply. It may not matter to another type of client. Warranty limitations and cross-indemnification, always important, but here uh, we need to make sure the customer is responsible for its own content and its own data. So there are additional requirements. The liability cap, um, is it going to cover loss of data, infringement? Is it going to cover a, a data breach, privacy issue? Those are always heavily negotiated. How far is your client willing to go? What's their cap that they desire? How are they going to achieve that or contain their liability? And then waiver of consequential damages, always. But um, what if that includes the loss of data, which may be a substantial loss to a customer? A more granular, um, organized way of tracking, tracking issues um, but still much more simple way than Gene's very detailed chart. So this is for internal use by your customer because often even small companies may need a tool because people don't read contracts. They hate reading contracts and they may even be afraid of reading contracts. You may have noticed if you say the word, the mere word indemnification, you can clear a whole room. People go running. So they do not want to read their contracts. I, it's rare when I find a CFO or a president who will sit down and read every line of the contract. That's rare. And, and it's wonderful. It's a gift. But in order to make their lives easier, because they're busy, make an issue, make a snapshot of where the deal is currently. Hit the big rocks, the subject. 
ownership of IP, indemnification, subcontracting, limited liability pricing are just some of the big rocks for this particular type of client. And then you can rank it um, high level, you know, low, medium, and more at a more granular level what the issue, what the specific issue is. Is it still open if the attorney has comments? And then the business people can weigh in in writing. Yes, your suggestion is good. No, we need to cap this liability. Um, has engineering done this? And you can keep track of where you are because things can get um, very complicated very quickly. So the famous book, Getting to Yes, um, the authors Fisher and Yuri identify several problems in negotiation. One, trying to impress an audience or grandstanding or not listening. I find the best negotiators hardly ever talk because they're listening. Misunderstandings, for example, having incorrect assumptions, language barriers with global contracts, different jurisdictions with different laws, different practices, different understandings. Um, I think two lawyers on a conference call with the CFO, their VP of sales, eight other people, is uh, they're much less likely to reach an agreement than two lawyers one-on-one. -on -one. And I think this is because if lawyers are talking in a crowded room, sometimes they vigorously try to impress um, their, their clients that they're winning points by winning points from the other side. And I'm not saying this is always the case, but uh, when I'm on a call with business people, I tend to sit back. I generally let them take the lead because they're busy, there's a reason for them being in the call or in the room, and usually it's to iron out some business deal, and I let the business deal control. Um, I may chime in to point out some legal issue, but I think the hard legal issues are best dealt with uh, with a few people, a few decision makers, or lawyers one-on-one -on -one after informing your client of what the issues are. So I try to come in um, open-minded, like a blank slate, ready to take in information and hold back. Um, another famous saying by Fisher and Yuri is to be hard on the issues, soft on the people. So come in without assumptions. If I always question, what am I not understanding? So that I can try to better understand what their point of view might be. Um, give people the benefit of the doubt. So um, in finding solutions to a negotiation, start with common interests. Start with overlap, um, where things are going well. If the counterparty is putting up walls or making unreasonable demands, you can ask why. If you try to find out what their narrow reason is, you can address that, that reason narrowly rather than give in to a broad demand. Repeat what they're saying. Demonstrate that you understand and hear it in your own mind. Sometimes a person just needs to be heard. And if you go right to the issue, then you've overstepped the, the importance of the person in just needing to be um, heard and um, understood. 
point to external intelligence to support your point of view, as we mentioned, like SOC reports, data security standards, other customers. If you can't reach an agreement, you might be able to change the scope of the agreement itself. It may be a different type of agreement. Maybe it's just a pilot this time around, and then the next time they can license the whole platform. So as a, as a sample um, of balancing both parties' perspectives, um, in this example, I often see mis misunderstandings with, a, say, a cloud developer's technology. There are a lot of myths about the cloud, and even though everyone's familiar with the cloud, I think a cloud provider can do well by upfront dispelling a lot of those myths. Data security is a major issue today. So each party may have their own responsibility under applicable laws, but the law doesn't dictate um, or require or specify indemnification. The parties can shift the risk between themselves, so there's, something, there's still something quite substantive to negotiate. For the best solutions I've seen, each party gets into the weeds to understand the vulnerabilities um, and identify risks that both parties share especially with data security, which is such, a, such an important issue. Only then can they assess the risks and who's going to be responsible for what, because in the event of a data breach, to unravel who's responsible for what may be impossible or at least extremely costly. And we're about at time. Do you want to take a This is my last, minutes? this is my last slide. Great. This is my last slide. Okay. So um, just quickly, um, it may seem really obvious, but finally at the end, it's really important, um, as Jean said, get that contract signed. See the signature. Make sure it's the correct final version and ask for a copy to keep for yourself. Make sure that your client, that the right person in the right office gets a copy of the signed correct version. It seems I've seen a lot of people run around frequently looking for the right version of the signed contract and, you know, can't be found. So also a contract wrapper, um, which is a summary of the terms in that contract. I know it never gets done. It's so valuable because a lot of time and money can be spent as an investor's coming in the door. Um, outside firm has to summarize a whole batch of contracts or in-house counsel. And then it's costly. You have to go back and relearn the contract. Um, Finally, and my final point, it's, it's very helpful to follow up afterwards and ask, how is this customer relationship working out for you? How's the contract working? Even if the negotiation was extremely painful, or especially if it was an extremely painful one, um, find out, learn from mistakes, find out how to uh, ameliorate those the next time, and keep in with your client, and that helps um, helps your relationship with your client and helps you in the next go round. Thank you very much.